Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Transcendence. Uh, we are a webcast that is sponsored, supported by the Swedenborg Foundation. I'm your volunteer host, Corey Bradford Watson. Today, we have a very special guest for everyone, uh, Pastor Dave Rogowski. I got your name right. You got it right. Okay. It almost, it almost stumbled upon its own. Now, thanks for coming on, Dave. Mm. And Pastor Dave uh, and I have actually worked together a little bit over the last uh, number of months until fairly recently. Uh, you were the interim pastor of uh, this church here, the Church of the Good Shepherd, weren't you? Yeah, in Kitchener. Here in Kitchener. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you're, you're a Mennonite pastor. Um, how, how did you stumble upon uh, ministry? How did you get, in, get roped in? Get roped in? Yeah. God, the great cowboy. <laughs> um, well, um, I was a teenager actually, um, and was and still am to some extent in a charismatic. So, in a sense of the of the movement in the seventies uh, and eighties of people who believe that the Holy Spirit can move in on people uh, in powerful kinds of ways and gives gifts and um, calling to people. Um, it's actually not that different from from contemplatives in many kinds of ways. It just um, um, charismatics tend to accent, you know, loud gifts like speaking in tongues and prophesying and both kinds of things. But, um, so I believe very much that I could be in direct contact with God, not as a contemplative, but as a charismatic at that time. And um, so I was spending a lot of time by myself playing my guitar, praying, singing, reading the Bible. And one day the passage from Matthew chapter 4, uh, where Jesus goes to the seashore and calls um, Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him and I will make you fish for people. Um, and it was like a voice speaking to me uh, out of the passage that day, different than it had ever been before. Well, and um, I literally out loud said, just said me, and I believe I heard a voice that said, yeah. Oh, what? really? Yeah. So, so at, at that point I was um, in grade 12 in high school. Ontario at that point still had a grade 13. I was doing math and sciences and was planning to become a high school teacher in math and science and um, changed my mind at that point, finished up my high school and, um, and went off to um, first to a college in Winnipeg, um, which was Mennonite Brethren Bible College and um, took a four year degree in, um, in uh, religious studies in uh, ministry and a BA in religious studies from the University of Winnipeg at the same time. So, okay. yeah. One of the things that can happen for me in, that, in the course of that, though, is that I was studying, and continue to study, was a recognition from looking at the call of the early kings in the Bible, um, mm -hmm. that they would receive a call from God, but then they had to have a corresponding call from the people. They had to both. They had to have both calls. And so um, I knew that I could feel a call from God, and I felt that call. And so I went to college preparing myself for that call, taking courses like Christian counseling, um, Bible preaching, worship leading, all those kinds of um, skills, theology, uh, but also sociology and so on, history. Um, but knew that I needed to have a call from congregation as well before I could really be a pastor. You can't just, um, so within the Mennonite church, um, ordination happens by a congregation, not by the denomination. So you don't get ordained when you graduate from seminary. You get ordained after church has recognized your gifts. Hmm. So um, I went to college, 
Um, worked in a furniture factory for a few years after college, was, um, was serving a lot of the congregation where my wife and I were members. And um, an opportunity came for a full-time position, uh, half working with youth, the other half general pastoral as an associate pastor in a fairly large congregation, about 300 members in southern Manitoba, um, and answered their, their advertisement, um, interviewed, um, and after two years they said, yes, uh, we recognize your gifts, and then I was ordained. So I went there in 1983, it was ordained in through the years. Um, I don't want to count them up right now, but a number. You have quite the experience, right? Yeah, so both longer-term pastors and shorter-term. So that first pastor ran five and a half years and ended on a bit of a sour note. Um, uh, there was some confusion in the congregation, and uh, while I could have stayed, it was probably better for me to move on at that point. Probably I was more liberal in the congregation. Um, yeah. And... Um, and so I went off to seminary at that point. Um, and that was in Elkhart, Indiana, which is where our North American seminary is for our denomination. Oh. And um, spent two years there. And then moved to, back to Ontario to a congregation and spent 10 years as a pastor there. Hmm. Um, and that was a very good pastorate. But in the time though, I was burnt out. Um, it's one of these things, early on in that pastorate, I uh, preached a sermon about Jephthah, judge of Israel. I don't know if you know that story. It's not a very, it's one of those stories in the book of Judges. Um, and he was losing a battle badly against the Canaanites or the Philistines or somebody. And um, he made an oath to God in the middle of the battle that if he won this battle, he would sacrifice whatever met him when he came home. Oh, I have heard this story. <laughs> yes. Wow. And, and it was his daughter. Oh. And um, so the sermon was entitled, Jephthah, Who Gave Him Permission? Sounds like a good sermon. Um, and then continue, and then proceeded to preach about um, male privilege, about sexual abuse. Um, okay. And after 10 years, I was basically burnt out because I had dealt with 14 sexual abuse cases, including two fairly significant ones towards the end of those 10 years. And so I was pretty toasty around the edges. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. I, it was it's really good, good that you addressed it. But it was really good for the congregation because they've had a, a good run since then with a lot more help. Yeah. Um, Great. And um, I can't imagine. I mean, you're just a few years into your ministry, and that, I mean that's heavy for for anyone. It makes sense that you were burnt out, but why weren't you burnt out earlier? That's <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot to handle. How, how do you? Well, well, the reason I was burnt out was not burnt out earlier. Was first of all, this was in the early '90s, and this is just when the church and religious institutions were waking up. To the fact that sexual abuse was alive and well yeah. in the church. Um, um, studies were showing that pastors were crossing boundaries as often as psychiatrists, for example, 
of pastors and psychiatrists. Really? Psychiatrists? With, with psychiatrists with their clients, pastors with church members. Wow. Um, and so we were getting this pounded home over and over and over again. It felt like every six months or so we had another seminar. And I studied this stuff in seminary area as well. Hmm. And I also knew then, though, that I needed to reach out. In fact, this Mennonite Central Committee had formed a sexual abuse um, team to help congregations deal with sexual abuse within their ranks. And so as soon as one of the first of the major cases appeared, um, I contacted them, and they came, and they walked with me in the congregation through that. As well as the denomination, my denominational minister walked with me and made sure that I had extra supports around me to help me. So the reason I didn't burn out sooner was I had lots of support, lots of people around me who were helping me to be able to deal with this and care for myself. Good. Um, but it was still just like too much in the end. Um, and um, one of the cases ended up going to court and the person ended up doing time. Um, there was another case that could have gone to court. Um, the, the decision was made not to take it to court because it was going to just probably drag the victim you know, through the dirt at that point. Um, so, um, yeah. Can't imagine. And yet, that's all around us, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, through all of that, I, I felt like the call was there. Um, I, I, when I say I made a mistake about preaching about Jeff, I think, no, I, I really think that it was, the, it was the right thing to have done. And to open this up for the congregation, I was willing to talk about this. And people got the help that they needed. Um, you know, um, that's, and that's, that's what ministry is about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Though I did, though I did at that point play with the idea of going back to school and getting my PhD. It was actually accepted into a PhD program, but we had two kids uh, in high school and didn't really feel like I could afford to take like, two, two to three or four years off. And hmm. there was some money, but it was going to be a major upheaval, so I didn't do it. Um, what were you thinking of? Studying. I was thinking of doing theology, which has always been a love of mine. Um, and um, tell, tell folks what theology is for those who theology. <laughs> theology. Tell me what theology, theology is. <laughs> um, well, theology is built on two Greek words: theos for God, and logos for word or understanding. So theology is basically an understanding of or a word about God. So basically, every denomination. Um, and, and basically probably every person has a theology, a way that they understand who God is, what God does, you know, how God influences the world, uh, or doesn't. And even an atheist has a theology. They yes, believe that yeah. God doesn't do those things. Yeah. Um, all people have a theology, probably. All people have a theology, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was going to go and study that. And did, um, basically did all the coursework for it. Um, part-time along the way, and, um, and then decided, no, I couldn't do that. Uh, but also needed to leave the congregation that I was in and moved on to another congregation. Um, another congregation that ended up um, with difficult times. Uh, the congregation was in conflict. I became kind of a soccer ball for them to kick around. Oof. And um, they, had been, kicked. <laughs> they had been in conflict for a long time before I came. They continued to be in conflict for a long time after I left. And um, so I was there about five and a half years. Um, it, there were many good what? things about that experience. Yeah. Um, uh, but after that, um, I um, decided to, I mean, first of all, it was, it was a very breaking experience. And there, and there are 
pastors who never pastor again after an experience like that. Yeah. But I still felt this call. I felt like that I hadn't done anything wrong. Um, there are things that I could have done better or things that I could have done differently, perhaps, to have mitigated uh, what did take place. But in the end, it wasn't about me um, or my call to be a pastor. Um, following that, I did a couple of uh, interim, in, uh, interim pastorates um, in congregations. Um, and those were really, really great experiences. Um, I really like doing interims because I'm a little bit of a disruptor. Yeah. Uh, and being an interim is a license to disrupt. Yeah. <laughs> I always say that as, a, as, an, as an interim, you walk in the church and you go, hmm, there's a skeleton in the closet. And they all go, well, we know that, but we don't want to open the closet. You're like, don't mention the skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, my job as an interim is to, is to go and find the skeleton and help the congregation deal with that. Um, to me, the test of a, of a good interim, so interim pastorates are often done after there's been a longer pastorate and a congregation's gotten used to one pastor. And an interim comes in to help the congregation to let go of that pastor. In fact, as I, if I, as I, when I come as an interim, I actually preached my first sermon about grief, oh, about people, the congregation's probably grieving that this person has left. Um, yeah. And then it is to help the congregation to think about what they really want to do, how they want to go about doing that, but they might want to do it in different kinds of ways than the previous pastor did. They didn't do it wrong, but they might be new ways of doing it that they want to, they want to explore. I really try to help congregations to uh, figure out what their gifts and call are and to look at what the needs are in the community around them and to see where those come together and see um, what kind of ministry they want to do then. And then that helps them to figure out who they want to hire as their next pastor. So the test, I think, of a good interim is that the next pastor stays a long time. It's a great goal. Um, and so those two interims... Uh, which are now 13 and 12 years ago, still have the same pastors as when... No way. Uh, yeah, they, the pastor stayed. Um, when, in one case, it's a pastoral team that has stayed, and the congregations are doing wonderful work. Uh, it's really exciting to see what's going on there. Yeah, um, that's incredible. Yeah, and they were really good experiences, and I got a lot of positive feedback for that. Um, they have a, a, I, do, I like working with people in groups, um, and often I'll preach... And then we'll have a discussion about that. And so I'm preaching about the situation the congregation is in, and I might preach about different kinds of ministry that they're doing in, or um, spirituality, or, and then we have a discussion afterwards. And, and I like facilitating those conversations afterwards, helping the congregation to be able to talk about things with each other, to open up that kind of a conversation among them. Mm -hmm. And um, that then stands in good stead in the years to come when they do perhaps run into differences, and they go, well, well we can talk about this. We know we can talk about this. Um, and so I've had that experience um, with a number of congregations. The next congregation um, didn't want an interim. Uh, they, had had, they had had an interim, they had a, had a longer pastor, they had an interim, they had a pastor who only stayed three years. And that was about him, not about the congregation. I actually went and talked to him about why he had left. It was important to understand that for me coming there. Um, and, I, and I told them, you really need an interim. And they said, we don't want an interim. <laughs> And I said, well, okay, there's another category of pastor, which is called transformational pastor. Um, transformational pastors come and do the work that the interim would do, smelling for the skeletons, looking at what's working and what's not working, looking at the gifts and the call and looking at the needs of the community. And then they stay and they try to help the congregation realize those new goals and those new ways of thinking about doing things. So I stayed in that congregation for eight years, trying to help them to 
Um, so we did all the work that an interim does. It took two years to do that with them. We came to some decisions about that, and then we tried to implement that. That's a that's kind of a novel approach, kind of bringing in your interim expertise and then sticking along for the ride after. Yeah, well, it's kind of fun because you get to try to work at all the all the things that you're hoping this congregation was going to be able to do. Yeah. Um, one of the things for that congregation, which they recognized in those two years, was that they're a small congregation out in the country, and they had no children, but one child, um, and that children were not going to come. But interestingly, they started attracting seniors from some of the seniors' communities around them. Really? Um, and the congregation just kept on having these seniors, people's, people in their 70s and 80s, come and like it and stay. That's <laughs> and they came to the realization, this is our call. Our call is to keep on doing this. Um, we're not going to close. We're going to do this. It's really cool. Um, though in time, they came to the decision that probably they were going to need to think about that. Main, like, because what was happening was they weren't getting people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And those are the people who were doing the work. And as that group moved up into their 70s and into their 80s, there was going to come a day when they were not going to be able to carry the work anymore. And they came to the conclusion that that day would come, but it was not yet. Um, and at that point, um, I felt like my work was done and it was time to move on. Um, they, they grieved that. I grieved it too. But um, looking back now, I think it was a wise decision for me to do that. Um, even though I ended up not having work for eight months after that. Yeah. And then um, my denominational minister emailed me or called, I don't remember anymore which one he said, Dave, there's this church in Kitchener that's looking for an interim pastor, but they're not Mennonite. They're Swedenborgian. Oh. <laughs> and I said, send me the contact information. Um, I had walked past this church often and had um, Swedenborgian, what's that, had gone and looked it up online. Um, in preparation for the interview, because the, con the congregation deemed to interview me, uh, I did a bunch more research to see you know, who this Swedenborgian church was and who was Emmanuel Swedenborg and those kinds of things. And who's, who was this congregation in particular? Um, turned out that I knew uh, the previous pastor's partner. Uh, she'd been one of my teachers in a spiritual direction program that I, that I graduated from. Oh, really? So Catherine Main. Um, so John Main was the pastor here. And um, yeah, so I interviewed, and um, they also interviewed somebody else, and I got the job. And uh, it was just an absolutely amazing experience, such a wonderful experience as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't compare it to other pastors, because they've had wonderful experiences with other pastors as well. But it was a great, great two years. Well, you know um, that they, they really love you here. Mm -hmm. you know, we had our own type of grief when you left. Uh, but I guess it's interesting to come into a space knowing that you're going to leave. Yep. After. Mm -hmm. One of the things about interims is that often there's pressure to stay. Yeah. And some interims do end up staying, and I've seen some good ones uh, where, where an interim would stay and was able to help the congregation move forward. Mm -hmm. um, but, but generally, like you come knowing you're going to leave, and that kind of gives you license to stir up the waters and so on. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, you don't set out to hurt people, but sometimes you know, I have to ask this question. Mm -hmm. um, and at Church of the Good Shepherd, I asked some hard questions of the board and of the congregation along the way. Um, so, but this one was also a different pastorate uh, in that um, usually when a congregation moves towards um, hiring a new pastor, the interim pastor just kind of 
steps back and lets them do that. And this congregation asked me to be involved, uh, to interview you, actually, um, when you came to candidate. Um, they asked me to lead the meeting where they made the decision. I did not express any opinions at that meeting. Um, but the congregation asked me to chair that meeting. So as a third party, I was able to help the congregation to speak openly with each other, pluses and minuses, you know, yeah. um, about the possibility of you coming here. Um, and then um, the possibility was for me to be here for the first four months of your tenure here. That was great. Um, well, <laughs> I'm and, and, and it was, and it was, and it's been fun for me um, to be able to, you know, to get, but I kept on saying, and my favorite verse was, you know, John the Baptist saying, he must increase and I must decrease. <laughs> um, and, and I think that we were able to do that. You and I were able to do that. Um, and um, I felt quite good about you taking on Taking on this more and more as I went along and me preaching less and just, um, yeah, so that's been, that's I mean, so um, uh, this has been an amazing experience as well here at Church of the Good Shepherd. Now, it jived because over the years, like I said, it was a charismatic back um, when I felt my call to pastoral ministry. And over the years, that some of the charismatism has, has stayed there. Um, but what's come alongside also is contemplative spirituality. And I really believe that Swedenborgian spirituality at its root is a contemplative spirituality. Mm -hmm. And um, was able to work with the congregation around that as a gift who they have, what they, which they have and are in the community. And I know that you've already started like a midweek time when the sanctuary is open for people to be able to come in and just contemplate yeah. or be mindful. You know? And we're, we're actually adding a meditation after that, uh, this next one. So, I mean, that's, that's a way of this congregation using its gifts in a, in a real need within the community. Uh, because mindfulness is such a big thing in corporate world and in, um, in government uh, institutions and so on, wanting people to be mindful about what they're doing um, and being mindful about how they're dealing with the people who they're working with and working for and so on. So, Tell us a little more about um, what you mentioned around contemplative spirituality and, and maybe how that relates to sweet Swedenborgian. Like what, what is contemplative uh, spirituality? Um, hmm. In your, in your take? In my take on it. Yeah. Um, contemplative spirituality is um, based on the belief that God is actually reaching out to human beings. I think that when Jesus came out of the desert, as recorded by Mark in the Gospel, um, he came out of the desert preaching the kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent, believe the good news. To unpack that a little bit, Jesus, as a good Jew of his time, would not say the kingdom of Yahweh. He couldn't say the word name God. So it's the kingdom of God, but that was also, that's already code word for God. Because when Jews would say kingdom of God, they really meant God. So God has drawn near. And then repent is the Greek word uh, metanoia, which means change your mind. Believe the good news. So Mark says, Jesus came preaching the good news. God is drawn near. Change your mind about who God is and how you can relate to God. Believe this good news. Jews felt that God was like other. You couldn't draw near to God. God was too holy. You know, the story of Moses on the mountain saying, God, can I see you? And God says, yes, but not my face, because then you would be destroyed. It's Jewish belief about God. God is just too holy for human beings to be in relationship with. Jesus is saying, no, God wants to be in relationship with you. Change your mind about this. Change your mind about this. 
believe that you can be in a relationship with God. Trust this new good news. So contemplative spirituality is based on the belief that God wants to be in a relationship with us. And that there are ways, tools, practices that we can use that open us up to be able to be in that relationship with God. So we have things like meditation, um, the, the act of contemplation, um, uh, reading scripture in a, in a kind of, concentrated kind of way. All these disciplines that we have, or practices, uh, are tools that can be used in order to open the human being up to be in contact with God. Because God tends to talk quietly. Yeah. Um, is it like all over the place, but very quietly. <laughs> all over the place, but very quietly, right. Uh, another, another key story around this, of course, is Elijah on Mount Sinai. Um, he has just had this huge showdown with um, the uh, idolatrous prophets of Baal and Asherah and uh, killed a whole bunch of them, which God didn't ask him to do. Um, and then flees because Queen Jezebel says, by tomorrow you're going to be joining them. Those right. dead ones. Yeah. And so he ends up on Mount Sinai, and um, he realizes that he needs to go out of the cave that he's in. And there's an earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. There's a mighty wind, but God is not in the mighty wind. There's a fire, but God is not in the fire. And then the Hebrew can be translated in various kinds of ways. There's a voice as still as silence. And he recognizes that that is God. And he steps out of the cave, he covers his face, and then he and God begin to have a conversation. So God speaks quietly, and we are noisy inside. Um, Buddhist contemplation talks about monkey mind. Yeah. <laughs> Just jumping from tree to tree and tossing fruit at each other. <laughs> like this. Nice illustration. <laughs> yeah. Monkey mind. And we need to become quiet. And um, so the, 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 the goal of the spiritual practices are to become quiet so that we can hear God, who is already drawn near, who is closer to us than our own breath, and who loves us exactly as we are. I, um, today, a friend um, shared a quote, and I don't know where the quote came from, but what she said was is that when God called us, God already figured in our natural stupidity. <laughs> um, and, that, and we can relax into that because God knows exactly who we are. Nothing about us is going to surprise God. And God still loves us. And still calls every one of us, invites every one of us into, into walking with God, into using our abilities to do what God wants to see done in the world, uh, to express the love of God in our community and wherever we are. God invites us to greater health, even. Yeah. Caring for ourselves. Um, I mean, the whole big, what, what, one spiritual practice is Sabbathing, like taking a rest. Mm -hmm. The word Sabbath in Hebrew simply means rest. Uh, and God is, of course, the great example. The seventh day, God said, I'm taking a break. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. And on a hot July day in southern Ontario with humidity sitting here at 90%, I'm sure that God would, God would say, come, join me with a beer out here on the porch. Yeah. I guess you don't get sizzle when it's that humid. No, no, you can't fry eggs on the sidewalk. No. You might be able to, you know, 
poach them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're poaching eggs on the sidewalk this evening. Um, yeah, so so you, you see kind of a, uh, a similar vein between Swedenborgianism and that type of contemplative spiritual. Thanks for getting me back on topic. No, no. <laughs> We're all about the asides here. And, you know, being named Transcend D, it's IOTS. We're, we're trying to transcend our idiocy, but we're very happy that God ex God already knows how dumb we are. That's right. So, um, so in reading about Emanuel Swedenborg, both before I was called here as the interim and then after, um, I see Emanuel Swedenborg practicing contemplative spirituality. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that he did, and, it, and it's common actually in contemplative spirituality, was he started recording his dreams. When he came to the place where his science could not find the soul in the body, which he was trying to do as a scientist. And uh, I've, I've heard people say that his uh, diagrams of, um, of cadavers and looking at the different body parts are amazing to this day. Um, but he couldn't find the soul. And so he was in a very short time period. With like, it almost feels like, like Tuesday, couldn't find the soul. Wednesday morning, he woke up and he started recording his dreams. Hmm. And that's a common practice for contemplatives, is to, what did I dream? Now, sometimes dreams are, I shouldn't have had that second bowl of ice cream last night. <laughs> but sometimes a dream is, oh, God is saying something here. God is saying something here. There's one pastor when I woke up in the morning, um, and um, I was dreaming the Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler. Oh. I had no one to hold him. No when to fold them, no when to walk away, no when to run. Wow. And I knew that that was a word from God that it was time to leave. It's a message, wow, yeah. really. And so Emmanuel Swedenborg was doing that. Um, and that of course then has influenced a lot of people since then in, in, um, who have read Swedenborg and uh, have followed some of his teaching to spend time in, in looking at contemplation, looking at, um, that that whole area of, of, it's almost like psychology, it's almost like a spiritual psychology, and have written books about that, some really, really interesting materials that I've read as well. Um, and, um, and even Swedenborg before, I think, his kind of spiritual uh, awakening, you could say, he wrote a book on uh, rational psychology. Yeah. yeah, so he was ready. <clears throat> he was yeah, he's ready. He was ready for this. Um, and I mean, then being in this congregation, uh, and recognizing how many contemplatives there are here. And how many people here in the congregation were also interested in more uh, learning about how to, how to be connecting with God. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, it's like, are there more ways for me to be able to be in contact with this one who loves me um, and whom I love? Mm -hmm. are, are there more, can we set up more dates? Can we set up more ways of getting together? Uh, are there more ways for us to communicate? Can I hear it more often? I love you. Um, I found people in the congregation who were interested in that. Yeah. And so we worked on that. I mean, one of the simplest ways is uh, when I preach, uh, and I've been doing this for years and years already, at the end of the sermon, I have, a, I have a, like a four to five minute time of contemplation with the congregation where they sit with God and think about what is God saying to me now? It might have been through something else in the service, but maybe it might have been the sermon. And that five minute practice um, this is my disruptor side coming out, and teaching people to contemplate. Because I do some centering with them, very quiet centering, some breathing control, and then some suggestions on where their mind can go. 
Instead of anywhere, here's where your mind can go. Imagine you're sitting in a comfortable place. You're at relax and you're at peace. And, and as you sit there, God, however you imagine God, can this is not this way. And and then it could be from the sermon or whatever, like a suggestion for something to think about, to talk with God about, and some silence. Yeah, that can be really powerful, that idea that God is sitting near you, because as you mentioned before, God is closer than our breath, and as the Muslims say, God is closer than our jugular vein, you know? And if God is always with us, and, and truly the source of what makes us such wonderful folks, um, then God is, is more human than we are in a sense. So what does it mean to actually feel that God is near you or in the room? Mm -hmm. You know, that can be powerful when, you know, often we have, there's a mystery of God, but we often don't have that, that felt sense of the divine's presence. And I've noticed that this congregation appreciates that kind of uh, reflection. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the Swedenborgian congregation um, with some long timers and many newcomers. Mm -hmm. um, who, many of whom were interested in, in this peaceful center, in the congregation, and wanted it for themselves, and have stayed. So, I mean, it's a very common thing in Canada for somebody to say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Yeah. And John Main, the previous pastor, actually put that up with a sign out here, and attracted people to the church. Yeah, people. <laughs> there are people here at Church of the Good Shepherd uh, right now as members who came here because, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll put that back on the side. <laughs> but it's, um, but the idea, and, and, I, and I said to the congregation, actually I said in my interview with the search committee, I said, you, this is what people in the world, this is what people in Canada are saying. And this is who you are. You guys should be full. Yeah. Um, now there's other reasons why people don't come to church. Um, but um, there are people who come here because, oh my, I can sense that God is here, that God loves me. And I feel like I'm drawing closer to God in the course of of being here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so that's been, we've talked about things that deal with sexual abuse and, and those kinds of things in churches, but my whole goal as a pastor through all the pastors has been to try to help people draw closer to God. And a, so a major part of that was the learning that I needed to draw closer to God. Yeah. So way back when, when I was in college, um, we would have in January, and this is a common practice in many evangelical churches and, and colleges, it would be January deeper life services. So we start the year off on a spiritual footing. Um, and we had Richard Foster come in my last year at college. So Richard Foster wrote the book Celebration of Discipline, which was really back in the um, late 70s, the breaking open of classic spirituality in the Protestant church. Um, he's an American, um, he's Quaker, so he's from the Friends, um, and he wrote this book on 12 classic spiritual disciplines, four um, inner, four outer, and four corporate. Oh, that's cool. And um, so I bought the book and I spent the next couple of years just practicing each one of the disciplines. So there's prayer, there's meditation, there's fasting. Um, as a friend, of course, in one of the corporate ones, there's guidance and there's celebration, there's worship. Um, hmm. And so he, um, so I started this path of learning and then read more books about spirituality um, and, um, and started teaching that, you know, to the youth and so on and working on that with the congregation that I was a pastor, my first pastorate, preached through all 12 of those disciplines uh, with the congregation. 
Um, and then when I went off to seminary, this was waking up at the level of theological and pastoral teaching in North America among Protestants. The Mennonites are not exactly Protestants. Uh, we never did sign the Declaration of Protestation back in the uh, 1600s or 1500s or exactly when it was. So not technically. De no, technically not. But we're not Roman Catholic either. So, um, but so it was breaking in there, and, and there I learned about retreating and um, some other disciplines then that that were were important. Had a spiritual director for the first time. Um, had a spiritual friend uh, who I would connect with on a regular basis. Um, so retreats, like getting away. Getting away, either with a, either like for a day with a group or by myself for 48 hours. Hmm. Um, yeah. Nice. So that so that when I went to that church then where I was for 10 years, part of my negotiated contract with them was a one day a month retreat day as part of my work time. So I took a day a month away as retreat time. Um, oh, that's great. So. Um, and, and, I, and I phrased it, this is congregation came out of Amish roots, wasn't old order Amish anymore, these are modern people. Um, but I said, you know, there were still horse and buggy Amish in the community around them. And I said, you know, like when, when you're plowing, uh, when these Amish ministers are plowing, the horses have to be rested every hour. And so that's why there's big trees where Amish have fields, there's always a big tree in the field. Mm -hmm. They go there and they rest the horses and they pull up their Bible and they sit with God. They're thinking about what they're going to preach on on Sunday. So you know, so they'll sit there for ten minutes and then they'll go and they'll plow again for fifty. And then, and I said, I need that time. I need a day a month. And they went, Oh, okay, that makes sense. So it's it's a Sabbath time. It's a rest time, uh, specifically designed to spend time with God. Mm -hmm. And so for the whole ten years, I did that monthly. And that's part of the reason why, another part of the reason why I was able to stay in that church with all the sexual abuse cases was I had this place I could go once a month and, um, and do that. Um, when I moved to the next congregation, it, that was just not going to work. And at that point, I found a spiritual director, which I had a spiritual director ever since. Um, so there was growth in my own spirituality, and I kept on retreating, and I kept on reading, and um, kept on going to seminars and so on, kept on practicing. And so in that next pastorate then, after the 10-year one, um, I had a spiritual director, and people started talking about Annotation 19. So Annotation 19 comes out of um, uh, Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual disciplines. Um, so he has um, a, a, a spiritual exercises that um, ideally are done 40 days in a row in a retreat center. Full state of temptation for the Swedenborg <laughs> <laughs> um, So, um, but he recognized, even when he was writing in the 17th century, that not everybody was going to be able to do this. That's a lot. Um, so at the end of the exercises, um, he wrote annotations. So these are guides to, to people. And annotation 19 says, I recognize that not everybody is going to be able to take 40 days out of their life and go to a retreat center. Um, so another way of doing the annotation 19 is to have an hour a day and then one hour a week with a spiritual director over nine months. Oh, um, so kind of makes it more accessible. And, 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 and I mean, I've been on retreats, uh, up to eight, an eight-day silent retreat, and that's really, really intense. And I can understand a 40-day retreat like that would be really intense. Um, 
this was this kind of stretched it out, and I feel like some, in some ways it allowed it to to, to just like sink in each day yeah. and each week. Um, that makes sense. And then what happened at the end of that was I decided that I was going to continue the hour a day practice. So you continued that. Yeah, so I didn't not, not with the aviation materials, but five days a week. Um, I now take an hour of contemplation um, with a, a variety of memorized prayers, uh, readings, um, just quiet time. I sometimes call my spiritual practice wool gathering with God. Yeah. I, it's not so much monkey mind as letting the mind wander, and, and but paying attention to what's happening in the wandering and going, oh, hmm. oh, and then, and then drawing that thought in and spending some time with that thought, talking about it tasting it, chewing on it, listening to it. Um, sounds quite contemplative. It sounds quite contemplative. Wow, um, so, I mean, so that, that practice has continued since then. I continue to work with a spiritual director. I see her about every six weeks. Um, well, how, how has that been? I, I, I feel like we probably all could use a spiritual director. <laughs> well, some people have this image of a spiritual director, especially if you've read, read uh, novels about monks and, and nuns in monasteries or convents, you know, those kind of um, drill sergeant for God. <laughs> um, it's not like that at all. Um, though, I mean, a good spiritual director, and I have training in spiritual direction, a good spiritual director will ask the hard question. So why aren't you finding time to be with God? Um, but it's much more, a spiritual director's job is to be listening with one ear to the person who's talking to them. And it's really about the person talking, sharing their story of whatever, you know, what's happened in these months or weeks or days since we last met. Um, and with the other ear, they're listening to their own heart and what God is saying to them there. So, what are, so to be able to, to be listening in a God way and say, oh, I need to ask you. And, it, and quite often, I have training as a spiritual director, and often then it's just like, oh, that feels incomplete. There's something missing here. And it might simply be that the person hasn't thought about what was the meaning of that experience, or how is that experiencing impacting me. Um, and um, my spiritual director is very fond. We actually laugh together about this, because quite often it's about an hour we spend together, and probably at about the 50, 55 minute mark, She'll look at me kind of quizzically, and I know, and where is God in all this? <laughs> and I'm an extrovert. I just talk, 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 talk. Uh, one spiritual director said that listening to me in spiritual direction was like drinking from a hose. <laughs> um, <coughs> we'll have to have you back on then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they, um, she'll ask, so where is God in all this? And that's a chance for me to just sit back and to think about where is God in all this? Or sometimes the question will be looking forward. What is the grace that you're inviting God to give you in the time to come? So just for example, uh, my wife and I just returned um, about a month ago um, from almost a month in South America. Amazing. Um, and a big part of this was visiting relatives whom my wife, most of whom she had not seen in over 50 years. So she was a little girl. She was eight when she left there. And the way she describes it is um, she felt like she lost all those people. She lost her grandparents, she oh. lost her aunts and uncles, her cousins. So tough. Um, and she went back and they were there. The grandparents, we, we saw graves. But the aunts and uncles were there and the cousins were there. And 
Of course, there's more generations now. It was an amazing experience. And I know my spiritual director is going to say, so how was your trip? Yeah. And where did God meet you along the way? Where did God meet you along the way? Oh, good question. <laughs> Learn from the best. <laughs> well, um, she asked me well, before we went, what is the grace that you're looking for? And the grace that I'm looking for was the grace to be able to stay centered in what could be a lot of chaotic experiences. Yeah. And so where was God in there? So we landed in Paraguay, first our first place that we were going to. And I knew that we were going to have to buy Paraguayan visas. And you have to do it when you arrive. And um, it's in American dollars. But what I didn't realize was that they had, upped, they had doubled the price since I last looked on their website. And they did not allow you to use your credit card. You had to, it had to be in cash. That's tough. And my cards weren't working in the machines that were in the security area. So I had to ask for the out of secure area to go to a money vendor and buy American dollars. So you had to ask to leave. I had to ask to leave. <laughs> and my wife came with me. They didn't even make her stay. Um, and we bought it. We bought, and, then, and then my cards, finally I had to use a credit card, which meant now I was getting a cash advance, which you don't want to do because they charge you interest for the moment, right? Yeah. Um, but through all of this, I was just one step in front of the other. This is 10.30 at night. We, 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 and we got picked up by the, the Airways Transit at 4 o'clock in the morning. This was a long, long, long day. Um, but I just stayed centered step by step through this. Yes, there were some concerns because my wife's cousin was waiting for us. And, and by the time, well, so to get the visa then, well, now we we're at the back of the line. And they would take a picture of each person and then print a visa and tape it into your, glue it into your passport. And so there were now 30 people ahead of us and only one person handling all of them. And each person took about 10 minutes. Because they're putting your picture in your... They would take a picture of you, they would print it on into a piece. It's a little different. Yeah. Um, wow. And finally a second person came and then it sped up a little bit. And we were kind of like almost, well, it was like an hour and 40, an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes into this process when a woman came in with a police officer, and it was Anne-Marie's cousin, oh. whom she'd last seen in 1965. That's incredible. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, but, but through that whole experience, we're just gonna walk this step by step forward. So I yeah. stayed, so I just, so where was God? And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not gonna go on because- yes, You stayed centered though. You stayed centered through all of that, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, I can't imagine. I, I found lately, especially, connecting to God as prince, princess, peace, is, is so important, especially when you have work where you really feel the pressure or situations where things are going crazy, but all the time, truly, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but I, I really think that, um, and Richard Foster talks about this, and some other reading that I've done as well, is that that we need a regular spiritual practice in order to be able to keep this up. Because when you get into that situation, you have to have a place where, where your soul goes by default. That you don't have to plan and think it. You have to have, like pianists talk about learning a song by muscle memory. That their, their hands know where the next notes are. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so that we almost need to have this kind of, our souls need to have muscle memory. So we get into a difficult experience and our soul goes, here I am, God. Help me in this situation. Be with me in this situation. Um, that's not to say that there aren't situations in which panic is quite appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Was it, were there any moments of that? <laughs> uh, Sounds like I would have been panicking already. So. Well, this could have been a panicky situation, but it was, it was one in which panicking would not, yelling and screaming helped. would not have helped. No. Uh, and there were other situations like that where yelling and screaming would not have helped. Yeah. Um, where it needed to be just like, just, yeah. But it's, I, I really appreciate, and I, I want you to continue from there, but I really appreciate what you said about having that practice that allows you to recenter when things get out of hand. And we find that with a lot of things, like you, you were mentioning pianists, and I was learning about posture and holding your, your, your spine in a safe position and how you need to practice it, because we're, we're not used to things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, and you're saying, you know, we have to have that on the spiritual level. Mm -hmm. in our yeah. There's a set of novels um, by a woman named Susan Howlich. Um, and um, the last three center around the same person. And um, somebody notices they're, they're heading out to the washroom early in the morning. And they notice that the light's on under their study door already at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and they realize that what this person is doing, this main character, Nicholas Darrell was his name, is that he is aligning himself with God for the day. Aligning himself with God. It's like, you know, it's like something's out of line and you just line it up so that, so that you're lined up with where God is going that day. Um, and I think that a practice of, of contemplative practices um, are there to align us with God. Um, worship in church with a whole bunch of people aligns us with God and we look around and we go, you know something? I'm not the only one, right? So when you get out there in the world and you feel like you're all alone, you go, no, 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 Sunday morning there were a bunch of us together. So I'm a big person believing in, in group spiritual practice. And I think at its best, worship is group spiritual practice. Um, so. Great way to think about it. I'm curious. So you, you recenter into contemplative space, and and you're you kind of you're grounded in that space with your your theology, your spirituality. Uh, what do you, what do you think about other forms of spirituality? And I mean, you came to a sweet Virgin church, so you know what's what's your take on those who who don't view things necessarily exactly like you, or may not even be Christian. Okay, well, first of all, Swedenborgian is Christian. Yeah. Swedenborg was a Christian. Um, his view of the afterlife and so on is, is, is a form of a Christian. It's kind of like a, well, you call it kind of a universalist Christian. Universalist Christian um, way of thinking about things. And, um, right. um, but so Susan Armstrong in her book, um, History of God, where she focuses on the Abrahamic faith, so Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, um, but at the end opens it up even wider. Um, notes that contemplatives all over the world, through time and in every religion, end up with similar ideas about who God is. And that is that God is love. 
Um, yeah. So, so there's this there's this sense that um, that that God is bigger than religion. God is bigger than um, my denomination or Christianity or uh, the Abrahamic faith. That God, um, who is the Creator um, and the Sustainer, and is the one who is working with a goal of where the universe is going. Um, which we sometimes think about as redeemer, or we sometimes think about as the builder, um, that, that all the religions of the world, especially the contemplatives in those religions, you know, so, so the people who are practicing Kabbalah in Judaism, or the Sufis within Islam, yeah. or uh, the Brahmins within Hinduism, and on and on, mm-hmm. um, they come up with this idea that God is love, that God wants to draw near to us, that God wants us to be loved, God wants us to be drawing near to each other. Um, that there is no hierarchy. That the, the, the land, the ground before God is level. And believe it or not, God stands there with us on that same level. That's so, um, so Susan Howitch, in uh, Susan Howitch, uh, Karen Armstrong in her book, at the end makes a plea for all denominations and all religions to be working towards a contemplative kind of spirituality. Um, so um, there are a number of Christian writers um, who have looked at what's happening in the world right now. One is um, a woman named Phyllis Tickle, and um, her book is called The Great Emergence. And she paints a picture of about every 500 years, the Christian West has gone through a convulsion. So you have Jesus, and then 500 years later, you have the church becoming the religion of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Constantine. Constantine. A bit earlier than that, but that's that time period. That's also the time when the Roman Empire is destroyed and the church becomes the organizing force in society. Church becomes the Roman Empire. The church, church becomes the Roman Empire in some ways. 500 years later, you have the split between the East and the Western churches, which is a major, major thing, which we, from a thousand years out, hardly recognize how earth shattering that was at that time. Wait, say that again. The split between the Roman Catholic Church mm. and the Eastern Orthodox churches. Uh, yes. Um, so that's around a thousand. One that we are probably much more aware of is, is 500 years later, which is the Reformation. And the Eastern Orthodox Church, is that largely concentrated in like Russia and other Russia, places Greece, in Europe? Russia, it, yeah. it's, it's East. Yeah, East. Right, so the Coptic Church in Egypt, uh, oh, the yeah. Coptic Church in, um, in Ethiopia, so all these churches, okay. because they're not just one church. No. And the big thing, of course, there was that, the, was that Rome was saying, we are the highest hill and the other churches said, no, we're all equal. Well, it's interesting, and I took a history of Christianity class, and you can only, like, you know, graze the surface of <laughs> any history, but we were looking at some uh, documents from, you know, the first few centuries, like 300 to 500 even, mm-hmm. and how there were Christian churches in India and China, thanks to trade routes, and we actually saw them disappear later after... I don't know if it was Rome or, or uh, what, what they called themselves, but the, the first kind of Orthodox church mm-hmm. started going to all the Christian churches and saying, well, you're a part of us. And then they would kind of stop all the practices that didn't fit their church. Yeah. And then so you have all these kind of organic Christian churches that we don't hear anything about nowadays uh, kind of destroyed mm-hmm. thanks to this church. And then later when these various states came to power in their own different ways, they would kick out, um, they would kick out the church, and then you wouldn't have any Christian yeah, churches. Yeah. 
fascinating history, so sorry to interrupt. But. Yeah, no, but I mean, so, that's, so that's, that's part of that, of Rome trying to put its imprint on the Orthodox churches. And then you're saying that happened, the Orthodox churches did the same thing. But so that's, that's a major, major convulsion of the church. Well, 1500s is uh, the Reformation. There's no longer just, at the end of that, there's no longer just the Roman church. There are all these Protestant churches and a few other ones like Mennonites who don't fit into either one. Yeah. Um, and we're at another 500 year mark. The church is shrinking in the West. Yeah. Um, not just individual congregations, but the number of congregations. Yeah. Um, Hugely. And so we're going through a convulsion here again. And I'm really wondering whether this convulsion isn't going to lead to, in fact, I'm starting to see signs of this happening, that we're going to end up with, <clears throat> with much more spiritual but not religious. And much more bridging across denominational boundaries for sure, and but even more reaching out beyond that to other religions. For example, the growth of indigenous uh, spirituality in, in Canada is just amazing right now. And there, I know there are people here at Church of the Good Shepherd who are practicing indigenous spirituality uh, as part of their Christian walk. Yeah. Um, so I think that this convulsion is leading us to more openness towards each other. In fact, if you, if, you, if you think about it a little bit, each of the convulsions that took place ended up with there being more options for being a Christian or more options for, there being, for being yeah. a God follower than there were before. Yeah. Right? You, so you had the split between the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic. Well, now you had two options. And then in the, in the Reformation, you had all kinds of churches, all kinds of Reformed churches, and then some of these sectarian churches like Mennonites and Hatterian Brethren and so on. Well, and I sometimes, it's interesting what you're saying, because I sometimes reflect on Swedenborgian Christianity and how, you know, because it is kind of an interfaith Christianity where, you know, Swedenborg at least didn't believe you had to be Christian to have a connection to God and go to heaven. Um, it, it kind of emulates a space where it invites people to just be healthy in their spirituality and, and it empowers people to do their own thing. So you have all these people empowered by the church, but a lot of them they don't necessarily come on Sunday. And it's, it's weird because I, I'm seeing in what you're saying, uh, as far as I'm concerned at least, Swedenborgian churches and Swedenborgian spirituality is, is another kind of image of this kind of plurality of Christianity that, that goes even beyond you know, those, that word, right? Yeah, I think there's a possibility of that. And I, and I, but I, and I really strongly believe that, that um, it's not going to be like just one Ever, yeah, ever again, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Abraham Heschel was a Jewish uh, philosopher and um, historian and teacher um, from the 1940s. I think he passed away in the 80s. The 1960s, he gave um, the keynote speech on the American, um, I don't know what, Association of Religions or something like that. And, um, in, in, and then the essay was published afterwards. Um, and what he said in there was that he believed that at this time, it is God's will for there to be a plurality of religions. Hmm. And he was a key um, conservative Jewish scholar. Okay. And he was saying this, he's saying, I believe that at this time, God's will is for there to be a plurality of religions. That's cool. Yeah, it was very, very cool. Um, so, um, I think in a way, when we have a plurality of religions, and, and we're finding you know, that we relate to God as love, and we're finding that God is love, embodied in everyone around us and all things. It's almost like we, we get more diverse, but the common core grows because we're no longer fighting over our differences, or hopefully, as yeah. much, right? Yeah. 
So, you know, that kind of takes me back to that theology degree that I never did. <laughs> um, and my son said, um, Dad, you, you think big, wide thoughts, um, kind of encompassing kinds of thoughts. And he said, a PhD is one needle on one branch of one tree in one forest. And that probably wasn't you. You, you, want, you want to see the whole forest. And, and look at what the patterns are in the forest. Um, Unless in, you find a rare PhD program. Yeah. We're just going to let me do that. Um, in interim ministry, we, we talk about the balcony view. Standing in the balcony and looking out over the congregation and looking at the eddies and the squirrels. It'd be a little bit like the congregation's having a potluck and they're standing around talking with each other and you just look and see what are the patterns of relating what's, and who's off on the edge, who's choosing to be there, who's being put there. I mean, so that's part of my way of being and thinking. So this way of thinking then about, um, about religions and stuff like that is, I think, more of that, that bigger picture. But I actually think it is okay for there to still be individual congregations and denominations. Yeah. Um, because often they will hold a little bit of that specific truth that maybe is being saved up for a later time that we will need. Um, and we don't know that right now. It's a little bit like um, ecological diversity. Like, yeah. why do we need that insect? We don't know. Oh, we find out later on that we need that insect. Like, for example, um, there's an invasive plant in southern Ontario here called um, purple loosestrife. And it was just taking over the ditches here. It's a bright pink flower. And it's beautiful, but it was just supplanting um, uh, plants from here. From, that, are, that are from North America. And I don't know where it came from, but it was not from here. Um, and they discovered that where it's from, that there is an insect that controls it. Oh. And it only grows so much, and then the insects kind of multiply and shove it back. Mm. So they had to go through all kinds of tests with that insect to make sure that it wasn't going to also attack all kinds of other things here. And when they discovered that it was safe, they released it here. And now purple loosestrife is under control here. So I think that individual congregations and denominations will sometimes be a, a repository of something that we may need down the road. Yeah. Um, and you know, and that, that could be Christian Reform, or it could be Sweden Origin, it could be Roman Catholic, or it could be um, or an Orthodox Church of some kind. It can well be a religion of some other kind. Yeah. I mean, like right now what we're seeing is that um, indigenous spirituality is reminding us of us being part of the ecological system, mm -hmm. whereas European Christianity saw us as lords of the world. Yeah, much, much of the European Christian movements, right? Yeah. Wow. So, so indigenous spirituality is there to help to remind us that we also, as Christians, worship the Creator. And what does that mean to worship the Creator and stomp on the creation? It's no good. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, I find, I find that's incredible what you're saying, how all things in an ecosystem kind of serve their purpose. And, you know, although variety is, is what makes heaven, according to Sweetwater, at least, the diversity, uh, you still have to have individuals, and that includes individual bodies and community, right? Like, it's kind of a micro-macrocosm type of mm -hmm. view. And, yeah, I think that's, that's healthy, because we couldn't, there would be nothing else if, if we were all, I mean, if we were just one plant, of course. <laughs> right.
Yeah. And that plant couldn't survive. No. <laughs> Not going to survive. It needs diversity in the soil. Yeah. It's, this is a weird thing to bring up, but um, someone was talking about kind of the threat of AI recently. And I, re I was remembering a joke back from my computer science days. And I, I don't remember the joke, but I, get, I remember the point. So sorry for, you're not going to get to laugh uh, about this. No, I don't know. But there is a computer, a uh, supercomputer, that can make anything that you tell it to. And it's told, make paper clips. And it does it so well that everything in the solar system is paper clips by the end of the week. <laughs> you know, it's like having no bounds of, of your growth, like mm -hmm. no, no appreciation or no outward pressure for, for diversity is, is the opposite of, of paradise. And, and what we find is looking around us, to your point around, you know, Aboriginal or Native people spirituality is, yeah, it emphasizes all these kind of the characters of creation and how their spirit in all things. Yeah. It's powerful. Do you find that that kind of viewpoint informs your, like when you preach or when you, you share thoughts? Like, Yeah, it very much influences. Um, I mean, just for example, of course, one of, the, one, of the, one of the issues around diversity is sexual and gender diversity. Okay. Um, and so that influences, I mean, so this idea that God has made us all much more than just men and women. Um, that um, so that, in, that influences preaching. Yeah. Um, but yeah, preaching and teaching and leading and really trying to work with people to, to allow for diversity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it sounds like you're, you're kind of, you're uplifting things that are very much in the national and global uh, conversation that, that some people, you know, especially in, from pulpits, right? We, we don't always talk about, or, or sometimes we squash. And you're, you're saying in, in your own practice, you, you uplift that diversity. And, and I'm curious what you have to say about specifically the gender, uh, gender roles and gender oh. equality. Right, I mean, there's, this is, of course, a huge conversation because we have gender and gender equality kinds of conversation. And then we have the whole, the whole, um, discussion of um, which, which to me is is more like has traditionally been the, the whole male female roles kinds of thing mm. um, but what I'm what I'm thinking about more now is that there seem to be more genders than male and female yeah right yeah. so um, and then we and then we have people who are with their birth gender and yet they feel another gender or people who are feeling like they are they're not just male or female right and they're not just you know, a homosexual male or a homosexual female, they're bisexual or something in between, or uh, asexual for some people. And, and to be able to say, okay, so if this person is feeling this way about themselves, and they are being helped to have some help, because I recognize that there can be unhealth in any one of these gender positions, including an absolute male gender or an absolute female yeah. heterosexual gender. That could be an ill health position for a person. So long as they are also being helped to be healthy in that place uh, for themselves and in their relationships, um, what's wrong? What's wrong with that? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, so but it, but to me, there has to be that balance then of of these kinds of, of things. Yeah, because you can be in one of those positions and be unhealthy. That's right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, leaning into health spiritually and, and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, socially, yeah. uh, physically, um, corporately. <laughs> I yeah. like that word from what you mentioned earlier that they're they're addressing kind of the corporation as a body, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it does. And, that, and that's interesting then, because this kind of then makes me think forward, because um, right now I'm not in an active pastorate. Um, I have my name out there, especially for interim pastorates, both yeah. within the Mennonite Church, and I've also reached out to the United Church at this point, um, which in Canada is a, quite a liberal denomination, but actually encompasses within itself extremely liberal congregations, and congregations on the evangelical end of the spectrum, uh, congregations which have you know, guitars and worship bands and congregations which are liturgical. Quite a wide spectrum. Um, so it would be interesting to, to work with them potentially. That's really cool. That's, um, yeah. and, and that's where I have, I have some things that I believe, but to be able to walk into a congregation, and I believe I could walk into any one of those congregations and help them to become the best who they are and believe that God wants them to be the best who they are in a healthy kind of way. I mean, Not feel like you have to force. You don't have to force things on them. If their conservatism is hurting people, or if their liberalism is hurting people, to face that questions, hmm. right? Yeah. Um, because some people um, can be liberal towards anybody except the conservative. <laughs> and we need to be able to listen to yeah. voices all the way around. It's tough, yeah. It's tough, yeah. Well, that's really cool. I, I really appreciate you uplifting that, because we don't always talk about it in such round terms, and, you know, I think that's very inclusive. You're right, forward thinking. I hope so. Yeah, well, if it's not you, you tell us in the comments how, <laughs> how we could be better. <laughs> but no, that's, that's awesome. Well, you know, I, I would really like to have you back on because I feel like with anything, we're, we're just scratching the surface, and especially with someone of such uh, wisdom and, and experience and insight. So thank you so much, Pastor Dave, for coming on. Well, thank you. And like I said to you uh, earlier, I'm an extrovert, which means I think out loud. Um, and an opportunity like this helps me to crystallize for myself some of the stuff that's been happening and thinking about. Um, so thank you. Oh, our pleasure. Well, thank you all so much for, for joining us today. The Transcendiates are brought to you by the Swedenborg Foundation. Uh, please reach out with your thoughts, your feedback, uh, maybe suggestions for guests, maybe we can talk to you as well. And uh, go forth, uh, open to divinity and other people, open to it in yourself, uh, celebrating with gratitude all the diverse expressions of God around and within you. Bye, folks. Thank you. My pleasure. That was awesome.